Turn your Bibles to 1 John 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 from the NIV. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is God's word to us today. Thank you, Bob and Elsie, and thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning in our worship. And uh, if you've been journeying with us, for uh, maybe the past couple of months since before Christmas, or maybe this is your first Sunday, uh, we should know, you should know, that we're working our way through uh, the Apostle John's letter, 1 John, and learning lots. And uh, over the last number of uh, weeks, we've had various speakers and voices, as Pastor Ken, our senior pastor, has been on sabbatical. He returns this week and will kind of take us home through the rest of uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 in, uh, in 1 John. And so this morning, uh, our speaker is Sid Page. And many of you um, know Sid and, uh, and his wife, Faith. Sid is a professor at uh, the Taylor Seminary. Sid was actually one of my professors back in the day when it was Edmonton Baptist Seminary and even before that, North American Baptist Divinity School. And so uh, it's always fun to come and, and hear a former prof speak. I know Sid is a, a great student of the scriptures, and uh, we're excited this morning to, to have him speak uh, God's word to us this morning. Uh, Sid has uh, two children. Actually, I should say Sid and Faith. Um, those of you probably that have been around here, they're kind of like a fixture at TCC because they were part of sort of the original group of 11 that started to meet and pray about starting a church here in, in, the, in the southwest. And so they were part of that uh, original group and have uh, watched God bless. And uh, many of you have come over these years and have joined us and have journeyed with us, some even more recently. And uh, it's because of faithfulness uh, of servants like Sid and Faith. And when I look at Sid, not only can he uh, teach God's word, but his character is one of just humility. He's a humble servant. You can as easily meet him at the door greeting you on your way in as you might find him pushing a broom after brunch sweeping the floor. And, uh, and yet, uh, he's going to come this morning and bring God's word to us. So, Sid, come. You're amongst friends. We love you, appreciate you, and uh, so glad that God has gifted you and uh, called you to be part of this church this morning. Thanks, Pastor Norb. I was afraid he was going to tell some stories of some of those many years ago when we were together at seminary and he was one of my students. Poor Charlie Brown, he never learns, does he? 
As Pastor Norbus indicated, we're engaged in a series of studies of 1 John. And like the other letters that make up the New Testament, 1 John is what we call an occasional letter. That is, it was written in response to a specific set of circumstances in the life of the churches that John is writing to. In this case, there had been a severe church split. And a number of individuals had left these small congregations that John was writing to. Their defection is described in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. It's apparent that these defectors had been professing Christians. They had been part of these early Christian communities. Indeed, some of them had been in teaching positions in these churches. Some of them had been prophets, people who claimed to have received direct revelation from God. But John refers to them as antichrists. Because although they claimed to be vehicles of a message from God, they were promoting ideas concerning Jesus that were terribly wrong. Teachings that were at odds with the most fundamental beliefs of genuine Christians. But if these individuals had been part of the Christian community and had been understood to be believers, had been seen to be believers and now we're promoting such lies, such deception. How could anyone be sure that they were a true believer? That they weren't holding some erroneous view? How could they know that they were truly members of the family of God? That's one of the issues that John wrestles with in this letter, and he proposes three tests that believers might use to determine whether they truly did belong to the family of God. Two of those tests are mentioned in the chapter before the one we're looking at today, in chapter 3. In chapter 3, in verse 10, we read this. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Now, here are two tests that John proposes. Those who are truly members of God's family do what is right. That's a behavioral test. It's a test of obedience. They're obedient to God. The second test he mentions there is a test that relates to their relationships with other members of the community, they love their brother and sister. And that's a social test, if you will. It has to do with their relationships with one another. So those are two tests to determine whether they are truly members of the family of God. In the passage we look at this morning, he comes to a third test. And this test we might call the test of truth. It's a doctrinal test. It's a test about what is believed. It's found in verses 2 to 3 of 1 John 4. Here John writes, 
every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. One way that you can determine whether a person is truly a member of God's family is do they confess that Jesus has come in the flesh? Do they affirm the doctrine of the incarnation? Do they believe that Jesus really took on human flesh? John was well aware that there were people who professed to be children of God, but who were advocating very different understandings of who Jesus was and of what Jesus had done. And among their distorted ideas was the denial of the incarnation. They did not really believe that Jesus had become flesh and made his dwelling among us, as John 1.14 says. They did not believe that the eternal Son of God, who was fully God, added to his deity humanity and became fully human in order that he might make atonement for sinful humanity. And so in the passage we look at this morning, John is wrestling with this erroneous teaching that featured the denial of the incarnation. And I want to call your attention to two very simple truths from this passage. The first is that God's people must discern between truth and error. And the second is, God's people must hold fast to what is true. First of all, God's people must discern between truth and error. Our passage begins with this exhortation. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Clearly, John didn't want his readers to be naive and just to accept anything that anyone would say. He was well aware that there were people promoting erroneous ideas, pernicious ideas, and God's children had to be careful not to be duped by them, not to be taken in. They needed to exercise discernment. Don't assume, John says here, that everyone who claims to have a word from the Lord is really speaking for God. There are false prophets. There are people who claim to be vehicles of divine revelation whose message does not come from God. And so you need to exercise discernment. Actually, Scripture has many warnings about the dangers of false teaching and the need to test what we are taught. Going back as early as the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, we find warnings of this. Deuteronomy 13 begins, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known. Let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. Here the author is saying that even if the prophet accompanies his prophecy with miracles, 
if you see amazing things being done, if he's urging you to move away from the worship of the true God to another God, he's a false prophet. Don't follow him. Don't accept what he says. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, we read, If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is not a message the Lord has spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be ashamed. Again, the author is indicating here that there are false prophets, and one of the ways you can determine whether a prophet is true or false is, does what they predict happen? If it doesn't, they're a false prophet. We have warnings like this scattered throughout Scripture. Reminders that the people of God must exercise discernment. Not everything that is spoken in the name of God is of God. Our Lord himself warned of this in several places. Matthew 7, for example, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. One of my favorite authors is John Stott. Stott makes the comment, Christian faith is not to be mistaken for credulity. The fact that as Christians, we are people of faith, doesn't mean we should be willing to accept everything that we hear that we should park our brains at the door when we come to church so we'll accept anything that is taught to us without question. We are to be people of discernment. We are to be people who test the things that we are taught to determine whether they are truly of God. One of the common characteristics of cults is that they expect unquestioning loyalty of those who follow them. Many cults are led by an individual who claims to be a spokesperson for God, claims to be bringing God's word directly to people, and they expect what they say to be believed and to be obeyed without question. And sometimes the consequences of that are disastrous. Those of us who are a little older remember an event that took place in 1978 in Guyana at Jonestown. Jim Jones was a very popular speaker who gathered a group of people around him and formed a commune, a Christian commune in Guyana. November the 18th in 1978, he had all the people come together to their central building And there they had a large tub with flavored drink laced with cyanide and with various tranquilizers and sedatives. And people lined up to drink this drink. It actually was an exercise that he had taken them through a number of times in preparation for this final last great day. Over 900 people drank that drink and died. They were poisoned. They had been taught not to question the authority of their leader. And they followed him, literally, 
to death. About 300 of those were children. Because they hadn't been taught to exercise discernment, to be uncritical in what they were told. Often, those who promote error can be very persuasive. They can be very charismatic individuals, very personable individuals. They can make their attractive seem very attractive. They can make their teaching seem very attractive. They would be much less dangerous if they looked like villains. If we could recognize them by their curly mustaches and their black hats. But that's not normally the way they appear to us. They're nice people. They're pleasant people. They're people who can make a very strong case for what they believe. They're very persuasive people. They can be very charming people. That's the case. What hope do we have that we'll be able to detect the difference between truth and error? That we'll recognize error when it's promoted to us? Well, John reminds his readers here in 1 John 4 that they had already proved successful in resisting the attraction of false teaching when it had come to them. In verse 3, he says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. He says, you have already overcome them. These dissident teachers were already present in the churches. They'd been advocating their views, but you were not taken in by them. You recognized the error, and you resisted it. Why? Because the one who was in you is greater than the one who was in the world. Now, who was the one who was in the world? Well, none other than that arch-deceiver, the devil himself. In the Gospel of John, the devil is referred to three times as the prince of this world. He is the one who is in this world. He's also described as the liar and the father of lies. And he's seen here as being behind the deception that was being promoted by the false teachers in the Johannian communities. When we think of the devil, we probably think of him primarily as a tempter, as one who seeks to incite us to do things we know to be wrong. But the devil is also presented as a great deceiver, as the one who would mislead us into error and direct us away from the truth. And John wants to assure his readers here that even though they have a very deceptive adversary, that they might feel they are no match for. He is no match for the one who was in them. He is no match for God. Believers, therefore, need not live in fear. Will I be taken in by some great deception? Will I be convinced by the arguments of some heretic? Will I adopt a gospel that really is no gospel at all, which is a denial of the truth of the gospel. And John assures them, remember, the one who is within you 
is greater than the one who is in the world, the one who is behind that deception. And God's people recognize God's truth. Not because they're smart, not because of their intelligence, but because they have God's spirit within them. And they can recognize truth when they're confronted with error when they're confronted with it. So the first thing to observe from our passage is that God's people must be people of discernment. We must be able to discern between truth and error. And we have the help of God's spirit to aid us with that. The second thing that this passage makes very clear to us is that God's people must hold fast to the truth. Not just recognize what's wrong, but affirm what is right. In verse 2, John says, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. One of the truths that a genuine Christian will affirm is the truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That though he was and is the Lord of glory, he assumed human flesh, entered into our world, became one of us. Now, the reason that John emphasizes this particular aspect of doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, is, of course, that that is what the false teachers were denying. That is what he highlights because that's what the error was about. It was a denial of the incarnation. But, of course, there are many other beliefs about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that are also crucial that are equally as important as the doctrine of the incarnation. The doctrine of the atonement, for example, the death of Jesus, and what the death of Jesus accomplished. John refers to that in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says concerning Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What we believe about the atoning death of Jesus is also of critical importance. And in fact, these two doctrines of incarnation and atonement are actually intimately connected with one another. That connection is spelled out very clearly in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2, verse 17, when the author writes, For this reason he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The incarnation was necessary for the atonement to be possible. So these two doctrines are very closely tied to one another. There are lots of statements in Scripture concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Creedal statements, if you will. Statements that indicate what the early Christians believed about Jesus and what we are to believe about Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul personalizes this 
And he adds his own comment, of whom I am the worst. Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and that includes me. I'm the worst of sinners. Later in that same letter, he writes, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Referring to Jesus, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Do you notice the rhythm to that passage? It's poetic because Paul is here quoting something, a creedal statement that the churches would be familiar with. This was not something Paul was creating. It was part of the tradition that he had received. He was passing on. Perhaps one of the most beautiful, richest, most memorable creedal statements that we have in the New Testament is the one that we find in Philippians 2. We call it the great Christ hymn. And it's a beautiful picture of Christ's humiliation and subsequent exaltation. Philippians 2, 6 and following. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we believe is important, especially what we believe about Jesus. It's eternally important. We live in a day when people are very suspicious about doctrine and where people tend to be very skeptical about claims to have the truth, to know what is absolutely true. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. That very much captures a kind of thinking that is widespread today, does it not? That's a sort of thinking, a skepticism about the possibility of truth, a denial that there is absolute truth or at least that we can access it if there is, is very widespread today. But you know, the words I just quoted to you were not penned by some modern philosopher. They were the words of Marcus Aurelius, second century Roman emperor. 
even in the second century, there were those who were skeptical about the possibility of knowing absolute truth. I think the preacher had it right. There is nothing new under the sun. These kinds of thinking that seem so prominent in our own day are not new. That's been there in the past as well. Despite the skepticism that is so rampant in our day, there are beliefs that are essential to the Christian faith. There are beliefs that are essential to whether a person should be considered truly a child of God. Now, not everything Christians believe falls into that same level of importance, of course. But there are those crucial doctrines that define whether a person is a Christian or not. I understand that one of my colleagues at Taylor, Randall Rouser, our theologian, makes a distinction between dogma and doctrine. And he uses the term dogma to refer to those beliefs that are central to the Christian faith. And that if they are denied, you've moved into another religion. You're no longer a true Christian. And then there are doctrines, other beliefs, concerning which Christians have differing interpretations and where there's a lot of variety. If that kind of a distinction is valid, the question can be asked, how then do we determine what truths are central to the faith? What things must be held dogmatically because they are dogma? And what things are less central? I would suggest that to respond to that question, we can turn to a 5th century church father, Vincent of Lorraine. He said, All possible care must be taken that we hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, by all. In other words, if you want to know what's the core that is essential to the Christian faith, look to see what has been believed everywhere, what is universally believed by Christians, what is always been believed, what has antiquity, it wasn't an idea that just emerged in the 20th century, but it's something Christians have always believed. And then there's a test of common consent by all. This is something that all Christians confess to be true. I think there are many creedal statements that meet the criteria outlined by Vincent, but perhaps the one that is the most familiar and that has received the widest acceptance is the creedal statement that we call the Apostles' Creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed not because it was written by the apostles, but because what it affirms is based on the teaching of the apostles. In that sense, it is their creed. It is, however, very ancient. Its origins probably go back to the second century, perhaps in the form of questions that were put to people going for baptism and the kinds of confession of faith that they were expected to make in order to be baptized. I can't think of a better summary of what is essential 
to Christian faith than the Apostles' Creed. It's not our practice at TCC to say the Apostles' Creed as a regular part of our worship. Many denominations have that as a regular feature of their worship services. We do not do so. But I'm, I'm going to ask that today we do. In a few moments, I'm going to ask you to stand and together with me, confess your faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. But a few words of explanation first. There are slight differences in the form in which the Apostles' Creed is presented, slight wording differences. And some of you who have grown up in churches where the Apostles' Creed was recited regularly may find small variations in what I presented today because this is a contemporary version of the Apostles' Creed. So be aware of that. Secondly, one of the items that we confess in the Apostles' Creed is our belief in the Holy Catholic Church. And just a reminder here that in that statement, the word Catholic just means universal. It's a confession of faith in the church that consists of all who belong to Christ, whatever their nationality, whatever their denomination. It's not a term designed to refer to a particular segment of the church, but rather the universal church. And then it's not my intention today that we would pressure anyone to make a confession of faith that is not heartfelt. There's not an expression of what they truly believe. And so if for whatever reason you're not comfortable making this confession, perhaps you haven't reached the point where you're sure that you are a Christian and this is what you believe, I would simply ask that you remain silent. Look at the words. Listen to the words. Because this is the essence of what Christianity is all about. So let's stand together. And we're going to recite these words together. And in doing so, we are standing in solidarity with centuries of Christ followers. And we are standing in solidarity with fellow believers in a wide variety of churches today who are also making this confession of faith. So together with me, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.